Thank you, Blake, for reading our scripture. Thank you for being here tonight. We're so glad to have you, and we appreciate those of you that have come back tonight. So good to see young people here. I want to say thank you to all the moms and dads who make sure that their young folks are here. It makes a difference, and it will make a difference. And I appreciate so much the fact that you're here and that they are here with you. It's good to see a couple of them sitting down on the front row. And so we're glad that they are here tonight. We're going to be looking at 1 John chapter 1 in our study tonight. We continue to look at great chapters of the Bible, and our study is coming to a close. Uh, we're going to be putting out a sheet in the very near future as we think about some of the great characters of the Bible that we will look at next year in 2022. And so it might be that you have an idea about somebody. It might be that there's a Bible character you'd like to know more about or you'd like to hear a lesson about. And so I'd encourage you maybe to share that with Jared or myself, and we'll do our best to include that individual in our study next year. We're looking tonight at 1 John chapter 1. And John, the writer here, provides us with a template for confidence in Christ. I want to begin tonight by asking you, how confident are you in your relationship to God? I think that God wants us to feel safe and secure in our relationship to Him. Sadly, there are a lot of folks that don't necessarily have that sense of security. They lack that fullness of joy that John talks about in verse 4. And you remember over in chapter 2, John would say, Hereby we do know that we know Him if we keep His commandments. And so we can have confidence in the Lord, and the basis for our confidence is the fact that we are walking in harmony with His divine will. So tonight I want to look at chapter 1. I want to begin by talking about some facts as they relate to the Lord. You know, one of the things that ought to impress us about Scripture is that when it comes to the life of Jesus, the identity of Jesus, the Scriptures are not vague and nebulous, but rather in a very concrete way, the Bible speaks to us about the truth as it relates to the Lord. So there are two things I think John bears out in this chapter. Number one, he talks about the pre-incarnate Christ. That would have to do with the pre-existent Christ. And then he'll turn from that and talk about the incarnate Christ. The pre-incarnate Christ would have reference to the Lord and His eternal nature. Jesus was not and is not a created being. He has always existed. He will always exist. And so with that in mind, look at what John has to say beginning in verse 1. That which was from the beginning, reminiscent of what John said in his gospel narrative. You remember in John chapter 1, John said, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. 
So we're talking about the pre-existence of Jesus. That is, the pre-incarnate state of the Christ. Down in verse 3, John makes known that eternal life which was with the Father. Again, the reference here has to do with the Christ, the second member of the Godhead. And we could go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. And you remember in verse 26, the Godhead said regarding the creation of man, let us make man in our image and likeness. That would be inclusive of God the Father, Jesus, the Word, ultimately who became flesh, and the Holy Spirit. All three involved in the creative process. Now in Colossians chapter 1, Paul there talks about the supremacy and the preeminence of Christ. He said that He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Then he said, by Him were all things created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or powers or principalities. All things were made by Him and for Him. And then he said, and He is before all things. That has to do with His preexistent state the eternal nature of the Christ. And so in John chapter 1 and verses 1 and 3, John is stressing the fact that Jesus Christ, as the second member of the Godhead, has always existed. But then there's also the idea of His incarnate state. The fact that Jesus was clothed upon with human flesh. Now the psalmist in the long ago pointed to the coming of Jesus inhabiting human flesh. You remember in Psalm 40, he said, a body you have prepared for me. That body was prepared in the womb of Mary. And the angel said in Matthew chapter 1, that that which had been conceived in her was of the Holy Spirit. So here we're talking about the God-man. Jesus, fully God and fully man. He was as earthly as His mother and as heavenly as His Father. Now going back to John chapter 1, regarding that Word who existed from the, the very beginning. You remember down in verse 14, John said, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And John said, We beheld His glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So note what he says here. That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you. So let's just pause there for a minute. The fact that Jesus emptied Himself of all the glories that he had, all of the glory that he had enjoyed with the Father throughout time eternal, took upon himself human flesh, came to earth for the purpose of fulfilling God's redemptive plan. That's why Jesus became God in human flesh. And so, you remember in Philippians chapter 2, Paul would say, Have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus who existing in the form of God, counted not being on an equality with God a thing to be grasped, 
but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, yes, even the death of the cross. Now the Hebrew writer said in chapter 2, verse 9, that Jesus has tasted death for every man. So what about the truth as it relates to the Lord? Well, the Bible pictures for us the pre-incarnate Christ and the incarnate Christ. But there's a second thing borne out in our study of 1 John chapter 1. It has to do with the testimony about the Lord. So what then does John have to say about the Lord who was manifested in human flesh? Well, there's some things that maybe we ought to consider here. Number one, John talks about their audible perception of the Lord. In other words, they had the opportunity to hear Him, didn't they? Firsthand, can you imagine sitting at the feet of Jesus and listening to Him as He echoed the words of eternal life? Multitudes had the opportunity to sit and to listen to Jesus preach and teach. I think about Mary and Martha and the occasion when Jesus was in their home and Mary sat at the feet of Jesus and listened to His Word. So here's what John said, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard. Then in verse 3 again, that which we have heard. So audibly, John is saying we had the opportunity to hear firsthand the voice of the Son of God. But then visibly, so we talk about visible perception. Listen again to what he said, that which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon. So now he's talking about the fact that not only were they privileged to hear the voice of Jesus, but they got to see Him in the flesh. Now I don't know about you, but I can't imagine standing face to face with Jesus. Can you? And yet they had that opportunity. They, the apostles, were blessed with the privilege of spending some three or three and a half years in an intimate relationship with Jesus. And it would only stand to reason that when Jesus asked the disciples about His identity that Peter would speak up and say, Look, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Through their association with Jesus, it had been made abundantly clear that the one before whom they stood and interacted was the second member of the Godhead, the Christ. So, audibly, the audible perception that we read about here, there was visible perception, and then there was tactile perception. And what I mean by that is they had the opportunity to not only see and hear the Lord, but they could touch Him, couldn't they? Listen again to what John said. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. So, John is saying, look, we had the privilege 
of laying our hands on the divine Son of the living God. Do you remember, for example, in John chapter 20, after Jesus had been raised from the dead, when He appeared to the apostles, initially, Thomas wasn't present, was he? So when the Lord appeared again, Thomas on this occasion, he's there. And Jesus told Thomas to examine the evidence. In other words, examine my hands. Examine my side. That is, the side that had been pierced by that Roman soldier's sword. And the Bible says, Thomas responded by saying, My Lord and my God. So they had the opportunity to hear Him, to see Him, and to touch Him. There's a second thought in our study tonight. First, the facts about the Lord. But then secondly, John talks about our fellowship in the Lord. So pick up now in verse 3. John would say, That which we have seen and heard we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write to you, that your joy may be full. So number one, the place of fellowship. What does the Bible have to say about the place where we enjoy fellowship with God. Well, it's in Christ, isn't it? Fellowship is in Jesus Christ. The apostles had the ability, as I said a moment ago, they had the privilege of being in the presence of Jesus. They knew Him. They saw Him. They heard Him. They touched Him. They saw the great miracles that He performed. They listened to His message time and again. And so the identity of the Son of God was born deeply upon their hearts. So they would echo, this is the Christ, the Son of the living God. But John is saying, look, I'm writing to you for a very special, re for a very special reason. And that is that you might enjoy the privilege of fellowship. Fellowship with God and fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ. The place of fellowship, as I said a moment ago, number one, it's in Christ. Everything we read about in Scripture, when it comes to the spiritual blessings that we enjoy, there is only one place where those spiritual blessings can be enjoyed. That's in Christ. As a matter of fact, if you go to the book of Ephesians, for example, some 35 times you're going to read the expression, in Christ or its equivalent which would say to me and ought to say to all of us that to be in Christ is to be in a very special place. Now you remember Paul said, in Him we have redemption through His blood. The means by which we get in Him is by obeying the gospel. When we obey the gospel of Jesus Christ, then we are ushered into fellowship, communion if you please, with the Lord. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 9, you remember the, the Apostle Paul said that they had been called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ the Lord. 
And so the means by which they got into Christ, again, was through their obedience to the gospel. You remember in Acts chapter 18, verse 8, Luke said concerning the Corinthians, many of those people hearing, believed, and were baptized. And so fellowship is in Christ, but not just in Christ, it is in the church of Christ. Now when I talk about the church of Christ, the point that I want to really stress is we're talking about the church that was born and bred in the mind of God, promised by the Lord, established by the shedding of His blood, and it began on Pentecost Day. So when we talk about the church of Christ, what we're really saying is it is the church that belongs to Christ. So when people are said to be in Christ, they are also in the church of Christ. Well, how do I know that? Well, look at Acts chapter 2. You remember those people had the opportunity to hear the gospel? They knew something about the death of Jesus. Matter of fact, Peter indicted them as having crucified and slain the Son of God, but he said God raised him from the dead. Why? Because it was not possible that death should hold him. And so he said, Jesus was raised from the dead. He is now seated at the right hand of God. He sits upon the throne of David, that great man of days gone by. And so when they were convicted of sin, the Bible says they wanted to know, men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said, you need to repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. Now in verse 41, the Bible says some 3,000 people obeyed the gospel on that day. And you remember in verse 42, Luke said, And they, that is, those who had been baptized into Christ, that had responded to the gospel, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, listen to this, and in fellowship. They enjoyed fellowship with people of like precious faith. Is there something that binds us together as God's people? Yes. That something is Christ and His church. In verse 47, Luke said, The Lord added to the church daily those who are being saved. So the saved are in Christ and they are in the church of Christ. That is the blood-bought body of Christ. And so to understand something about the place of fellowship. Listen, if you're a Christian and you belong to the body of Christ, there is not a greater institution on this earth that you can identify with. I mean, this is the institution that was born and bred in the mind of God before time began. Jesus was the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And so we have the opportunity to be in fellowship with God the Father and Jesus the Son. Now, there's a second thing I want to call your attention to. It has to do with the premise of fellowship. Now, John said, pick up with me again in verse 4. These things we write to you that your joy may be full. Is there a sense of joy that ought to accompany our relationship to the Lord. There is. There should be. 
You remember when the Apostle Paul, for example, wrote to the church at Philippi, and Paul was in a Roman prison. And one of the overriding themes in the book of Philippians is the joy that we ought to have in Christ. And Paul would say, rejoice in the Lord, and again I say, rejoice. Well, why? Because we enjoy a very special relationship with the Lord. We belong to Him. He bought us, and because we belong to Him, He has showered all these great and amazing blessings upon us. So, let's think for a minute or two about the premise of fellowship. There are two things John's going to talk about here. Number one, the danger of an inconsistent life. And then the flip side of that coin would be the delight of a consistent life in Christ. So now, look at verse 5. This is the message which we have heard from Him and declare to you, that God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with Him, and walk in darkness, here's what John said, we lie and do not the truth. So what John is saying is, there is some impending dangers associated with being in Christ. The danger is to claim a relationship with the Lord, but fail to walk in the light as we should. Are there people sometimes that say, you know what, I'm a child of God, I belong to Him, but in reality, the lifestyle doesn't back up what they're having to, or what they say? Well, of course. And what John is saying is, we need to be consistent in how we live day in and day out. There is a walk, a manner of life, if you please, that ought to accompany our lifestyle. Now again, over in 1 John chapter 2, you remember John said, Hereby we do know that we know Him. If we keep His commandments, Wednesday night in the devotional, Jared made reference to the fact that if we claim to be a child of God, and we claim to have a relationship with the Lord, but then we continue to live in habitual sin, then the bottom line is we're not where we ought to be spiritually. And that, that's really what John's saying here. He's saying that our lifestyle ought to back up our profession. Now, note if you would, the delight that we ought to have in consistently, day in, day out, living for the Lord. Look again at verse 7. In verse 7, John said, But if we walk in the light, to walk in the light simply means to walk in cadence with the teaching of God. That's all that means. It means that we're trying to the best of our ability to live up to the ideals of Scripture. That's our goal. And so John said, if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, number one, we have fellowship with one another. And then he said, and the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ, cleanses us from all sin. So is there this sense of confidence that ought to be a part of my Christian life? Yes, that's what John's saying. That if I am trying to the best of my ability to live in harmony with the revealed will of Almighty God through Scripture. 
If I'm trying to do my best day in and day out, and I'm sensitive to the teaching of Almighty God, the assurance I have is that His blood is constantly working in my favor for my good. I don't know anybody that doesn't need the blood of Christ. You know, there are a lot of folks in the world today, sadly, that haven't made the connection between the blood of Christ and being baptized into Christ. When we are baptized into Christ, on the one hand, there is a death that takes place. You remember what Paul said in Romans chapter 6, verse 3, Know ye not that all we who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? There is a death that takes place. But then, he said, we rise to walk in newness of life. What is it that affords us this new life in Christ? Well, it's our response to the gospel, and it is the blood of Jesus. And so that blood is operative in our lives. We don't have to worry about that. When I go to bed at night, I can go to bed with the assurance that the blood of Jesus is covering my sins. When I rise up in the morning and begin my day and live day in and day out in this world, I have the assurance that His blood is constantly working in my life. Listen, that's confidence, isn't it? So, to know about the blood and the relationship we have to that blood. There is a third thing I want to share with you very quickly in our study. It has to do with our favor in the Lord. When we become children of God, there are some special blessings, unique blessings, that we enjoy. Matter of fact, we might say we are blessed above the rest, that is, those who are in the world. It's not that they can't be blessed. It's not that God doesn't want to bless them. They just haven't taken the initiative. They haven't complied with the conditions set forth to enjoy those blessings. So, John now talks about our faults in Christ. As a child of God, as someone who has obeyed the gospel, number one, John is going to deal with our relationship to sin. Well, what about that relationship to sin? Prior to obeying the gospel, our life was characterized by sin, wasn't it? And didn't John say in 1 John chapter 3, verse 4, that those who commit sin, that they transgress the law of God? And Paul would say, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So, as a child of God, what we have done is put that old way of life to death. Matter of fact, Paul would say it like this, God forbid that I should glory except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified unto me, and I unto the world. What's Paul saying there? Paul's saying that when I obeyed the gospel, I put to death that old way of life. And John is saying that as children of God, that old man, that old person of sin, is dead. But then, as a child of God, there is the recognition but at times in life, we succumb to pressure, to temptation, and what do we do? We sin. And so, with that in mind, to just understand that sin 
is a problem and that our goal is to overcome. So look at verse 8. John said, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we haven't sinned, we make Him a liar. His Word is not in us. So number one, our relationship to sin. Well, we've died to a habitual practice of sin in life. But then, there is our recognition of the fact that at times we stumble and fall. So what John's going to do is give us a blanket of assurance that God has a second law of pardon. Forgiveness is extended to all who are in Christ. Well, there are a couple of prerequisites, aren't there? Number one, we have to be willing to admit when we fall short of God's glory, don't we? Isn't that what John said? If we say that we have not sinned, we deceive ourselves. The truth isn't in us. If we say that we haven't sinned, he said we make him a liar. His word's not in us. So in verse 9 he said, but if we confess our sins. Now I said a minute ago that our relationship to sin is such that we die to that old way of life. And you remember in 1 John chapter 2, look at chapter 2 verse 1. John said, my little children, these things I write to you. Right? Why? That you may not sin. And the idea is that our ideal as Christians is to rise above a life of sin. Over in chapter 3 at verse 8, here's what John said, Whoever has been born of God does not sin. His seed remains in him, for he cannot sin because he's been born of God. Now, when we obey the gospel of Christ, you remember Paul said, for example, in Galatians chapter 3, that we are heirs according to the promise, that promise that was made to Abraham in the long ago, that through his lineage all nations of the earth would be blessed. And so as a result of our obedience to the gospel, the seed of the kingdom is the word of God, isn't it? And what we do is take the seed of the kingdom, make application to our lives, and try to live in harmony with that will or that word. And John here is not saying it's impossible for us to sin. He's simply saying that that old way of life has been ruled out. It's not a part of us anymore. We're not living in the bondage, if you please, of sin. So, there is the acknowledgement, admission of sin. But then what John says in chapter 2, we have an advocate with the Father. And the picture of an advocate is that of someone who is standing, well, we might say that from a legal vantage point. Here is someone, that someone being Christ, who is standing before the bar of heaven. And the Lord is pleading our case with the Father. The means by which we enjoy exoneration the means by which we have the assurance that we're in a relationship with the Father is His blood. And that's the point John's making here. So what John is trying to say is, look, if we confess our sins, when we stumble and fall, God has a second law of pardon. 
We don't have to be rebaptized. But rather what we are encouraged to do is to acknowledge our sin and then to bask in the assurance that God forgives us. I think sometimes as members of the body of Christ, we have difficulty forgiving ourselves. And sadly, we fail to take God at His word. If God says that He will do something, can we believe that? I mean, think about it for a minute. When you became a child of God, when you repented of your sins and were baptized into Christ, now Jesus said you enjoy salvation. Peter said you enjoyed the remission, the remitting of your sins. Paul said you enjoy the washing away of your sins. So when you became a child of God, no matter what your past may have been, did you believe in your heart of hearts that God genuinely, truly forgave you? Yes or no? My prayer would be yes. So as one of His children, when we stumble and fall, acknowledge that and ask God to forgive us. And God said through John, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Does God mean that? If I have asked God to forgive me, and if I have the attitude, you know what, I'm going to do better tomorrow. I'm going to give better effort tomorrow. I'm going to do my best to rise above temptation. Can I go to bed at night? Believing that the blood of Christ is operating in my life? The answer is yes. Listen, you remember the Hebrew writer in chapter 8, verse 12 said, I will be merciful to their unrighteousness. And their sins and their iniquities I will remember no more. Contrast that to the Mosaic dispensation. Where the Hebrew writer said, in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sin every year. They enjoyed forgiveness in anticipation of the shedding of the blood of Jesus. But today, because of what Christ did on Calvary, we have the assurance that our sins are washed away. And listen, we will never have to meet them again. Whatever is in your past, when you obeyed the gospel, or let's just say you're a child of God and you've stumbled and fallen, your life's not what it ought to be, and you've asked God to forgive you, then you need, you need to have the confidence that whatever is in your past is in the past. God doesn't operate like we do sometimes. You know, sometimes if we have a conflict with somebody and we try to resolve it, sadly, sometimes there are certain individuals that will continue to throw up in our face what happened in the past. But what John is saying and what the Bible says is that's not how God operates. And you can have confidence in your relationship to God. Listen to what John said, 1 John chapter 5. This is a testimony. This is a record that God has given us eternal life and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things I have written unto you that believe in the name of the Son of God, listen to him, that you may know, K-N-O-W. We can know that we're saved people. Why? Because of the blood of Christ. 
So there's confidence. That's why I think when Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, Paul could say, for we know that if this earthly house, this tabernacle be dissolved, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands. Paul didn't have to worry about his future. He didn't have to worry about eternity because Paul was trying to walk in the light, live according to the precepts of God, and he knew that as a result of that, he lived in hope of life eternal. Tonight, let me ask you this question as we close. Are you confident, rock-solid confident in your relationship to God? Please don't leave here tonight with a think-so, maybe-so, hope-so attitude. John is writing to assure, to give us confidence. That's how God wants us to live, as confident people. And so, in closing, I would say, if God makes a promise, and we're His children, we have the right to lay claim to that promise. Do you believe that? I do. We ought to live like that. So if you're here tonight, let's just say you haven't obeyed the gospel. And you haven't been blessed with the cleansing power of the blood. If you'll go back and do what they did 2,000 years ago in the city of Jerusalem on Pentecost Day. Put your faith in Jesus, repent of your sins, be baptized into Christ, then you can enjoy forgiveness. God will put you in the church and the church is the house of the saved. Ephesians 5.23 And then be faithful. And when you step out into eternity one day, when we step out into eternity one day, we can have the assurance that God will say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. That's how we want to live. We want to live with confidence. Now, if you're here tonight and you're not faithful to His cause, and maybe you want the prayers of the church, listen, we would be more than happy to pray on your behalf tonight. God will abundantly pardon us. We stand and sing.